You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. On Hollywood Boulevard, in pale afternoon light bent through tweed curtains, the band's bass player drew herself, panting, from the still-trembling body of her lover, who lay with his head tipped over the foot of the bed. His hands, which had encircled her, palms nudging her breasts, now fell to his own thighs, his blotched penis draped in an arc to his stomach. There were no robes here, no music. They'd poured from the new bottle into plastic cups, which sat in a spilled pool of whiskey on the side table, beside the telephone. The bottle was half empty, but the bass player didn't feel drunk anymore. She undoubled her knees and stretched her feet to cradle his ribs. Leaning back, her sweaty shoulders sealed like a decal to the headboard. The motor inn was a perfectly tawdry arena. If possible, she'd have her car and apartment destroyed by remote control and begin again from here. It was as if the hotel rooms they'd inhabited were the telephone line they'd dwelled in earlier, now expanded to contain the whole of Los Angeles. She felt like a marine creature, a pilot fish, a dipper or darter around the perimeter of some animal greater and slower than herself, or possibly not an animal, but a planet, a distant body. The complainer seemed remote not only in space but in time, the progression of his hair, dark to white, a horizon of years, as though she crawled toward him across some time-lapse vastness, a desert or ocean floor which bloomed and declined before her eyes. Every darting movement she made, her whole lithe, slippery course across his body, The seeking effort of her mouth and hands was an attempt to close this margin between them. But with no apparent malice or guile, he'd shunted away, as though their exact proximity was polar, regulated by magnetic force. Jonathan Lethem won the National Book Critics Circle Award for his novel Motherless Brooklyn. In 2005, he won a MacArthur Foundation Fellowship. His new novel is You Don't Love Me Yet. Welcome to the program, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. Jonathan... This is a very interesting novel, particularly in contrast to your previous novel, which was, in many ways, the great American novel. Oh, well, I blush. (laughs) Um, With a wide scope (laughs) and and a lot of meat, this is a slim, fun, fast novel, equally well written. Uh, Tell us a little bit about what brought you to this slightly different format. Well, yeah, the contrast to my last published novel, Fortress of Solitude, is sort of maximum. But, of course, this book, for me, feels like a return in many ways to some of the modes and strategies of, of my earlier books, um, in particular a novel called As She Climbed Across the Table, which is also a kind of romantic comedy and also set in California with a very, I guess you'd say, kind of flayed prose. I, I In both cases, I stripped the book down as tight as I could and tried to make sure there wasn't any any surplus. I wanted it to... To, to be a kind of a sprint. And as people have been telling me they're able to read the book in a sitting or two, I'm very proud of that because I mean it to be kind of irresistibly lean and, and, and funny and have the sentences kind of spring through the air. I, I wanted this book almost to be like a pop single in a way, to be like a piece of vernacular art, uh, more like a rock and roll song than like a novel, if that was in any way possible. Of course, it's totally impossible. But what what it does have in common with Fortress of Solitude is the um, the love of music, the embrace of of popular song forms, and for me, it's secretly also a very personal novel. There isn't a plainly autobiographical character, and you don't love me yet. But I have an intense kind of identification with the whole group of characters, and all of them contain parts of me. And the book arose from thinking about that period in my 20s when I lived in Berkeley and me and my friends were all sort of wannabes, very unformed and pretentious and claiming things that weren't true about ourselves and trying to make them true. You know, one of the strange things about trying to make a life in the arts is that you sort of have to be a fake before you can be real. And that is the uh, mode of life that I wanted to portray in, in this new novel. It is, as you say in the book, characters at the edge of life. They're they're almost getting ready to to start a life, aren't they? Well, yeah, sure, or 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 be rejected. I mean, you know, there's always the possibility that nothing's going to happen for them, and they'll run screaming back to graduate school or 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 some other 
hiding place. I mean, I, I, I don't think one of the th- things that people ask me is whether I think this band is actually any good or whether they deserve a, a success larger than the, the one they find in the pages of the book. And I'm not sure they do. They're, they're, they're sort of uh, callow characters in a lot of ways. And, and I, I don't mean to, to proclaim their genius. But nevertheless, their striving is very moving to me. It's very evocative. I, I, I care about them. Whether they're great musicians or not, I don't know. But there's a tenderness to their attempt to become something in the world that I do care about quite a lot. You have a lot of fun with the names of these characters, don't you? Yeah, I, I you know, I um, reading as as a as a teenager, I always used to prefer books with colorful names. I I, I could remember them better, and uh, I always had trouble keeping tabs of characters whose names were sort of Bob and Ed and Joe. So I decided I was always going to give my characters, I sort of promised I would provide my readers this service and give them strange and memorable names. What is it with the kangaroos? You you have a thing about kangaroos, don't you? (laughs) Well, this is just the second kangaroo. It's not like I always use them. I sort of reach for a kangaroo once a decade. But yeah, it's kind of an in-joke with my my long-term readers to say, look, hi, how are you? You know, remember this? I also kind of owed the kangaroos a correction because the first time I I, um, I wrote about a kangaroo, I, I, I made up a, a male kangaroo named Joey, but I gave him a pouch. And it turns out male kangaroos don't have pouches, but no one fact-checked me on that, so it got into print. So this is a kind of, you know, a long-standing debt I incurred to the species. Tell us a little bit about the conceptual art background in this book. It's really fun. I, you have a lot of fun with conceptual art. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I, I think there's something about the the conceptual artist in this book that it, it's emblematic, him and his screwy ideas, of the stance of an artist in the world in the first place because what you're doing is kind of serious play. You're taking the kinds of jokes or idle thoughts or wishful daydreams or paranoic fears, whatever they may be, the idle thoughts, and uh, enshrining them, making them into something in the world rather than dismissing them and and trying to be practical. And a conceptual artist, uh, certainly anyway, the kind that I invented for this book, basically has the job of taking the kinds of passing fancies that you you or I might enjoy talking about briefly, especially if you were stoned, but then making something of them, you know, kind of concretizing them in the world and and that some, something very strange and and compelling to me about that um, the, the, that that form of activity where you're taking your own jokes so seriously I, one of the things I think is really telling is that you say Falmouth's most successful piece of art was himself yeah well you know I was thinking of a figure like Andy Warhol you know the kind of preposterous you know we're going back further to someone like Oscar Wilde who as terrific as some of his writings may be, the figure he cut in the world, the, the kind of precious but, but ridiculous profile that he cut became his most lasting impression. And uh, there's something about that kind of artist that's very appealing to me. So I wanted to invent one. Tell us a little bit about the, the dynamics of the rock band. Did you research this? Okay, were you in a rock band ever? Well, no, just barely. I mean, I, I, I hesitate to even mention it because it was so so feeble, and it lasted for about five minutes. But really, my my awareness of the dynamics of bands and my, my curiosity about bands and how they function just comes from my fanishness, you know, from from loving this kind of music and, and you know, being a devoted listener, but also the kind of music nerd who reads the liner notes and sometimes reads the even the biographies. I have a strong vicarious life as a rock musician, so that's reflected in this book. I'm I'm indulging my own daydreams. Well this band we have the drummer who's the heart of professionalism. Tell us a little bit about each of the characters well, right, who they are. There's a female rhythm section, Denise, the drummer you mentioned, who's kind of meticulous and she's the glue that keeps the band on track, keeps them rehearsing and um, more or less pointed towards this possible goal, this future goal of having a gig someday, playing playing for someone other than themselves. And then Lucinda, their bassist, who's also the really the lead character in the book. It's her point of view that we're inside for almost all the pages of, of You Don't Love Me Yet. And Lucinda is, uh, 
I guess you'd say, a little more irresponsible, a little less devoted a musician than, than Denise. She loves the band. I mean, she identifies with it totally, but she's just not very good at showing up on time to the rehearsals and so on. And then the two guys in the band, Matthew, who's the lead singer and is Lucinda's ex, and, and Bedwin, the lead guitarist and arranger and songwriter. He's kind of the band's official genius, the one who, who makes up stuff for them to play and sing, which is a bit of a problem because he's also very thwarted, kind of blocked, shy, recalcitrant genius. The sort of person you suspect is as afraid to succeed as they are eager to succeed. One of the themes of this book, it seems to me, is, well, we see this a lot, and I'm curious, is is this purposeful? We see a lot of the union of opposites in this book. There's the foot sign. There's a, a, You have a great line that's really funny where you say um, the, the vegeta- this, uh, this vegetarian section of the grocery store is a real meat market. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is that a deliberate yeah. theme? To I am fooling around with the kind of paradoxes a lot in this book. And so a produce section that's a meat market and a music that belongs to everyone and no one, characters who are young but old, or sometimes the reverse, old but young. <laughs> I'm definitely thinking about perversity and paradox quite a lot, and I want the characters to be kind of enmeshed in the strange doubleness of life. You know, when you're an artist, you dwell in a kind of double world. You're trying to be something spectacular and famous and marvelous to yourself and to others, but at the same time, there's something very embarrassing and pathetic and prosaic about the day-to-day life of an aspiring anything. You know, you've got a day job, and most of the time you're not working very hard on your art, and you're sort of just dreaming of something that isn't true and trying to somehow dream it into being true. And that enormous distance between the self-image of the artist as this kind of grandiose person in, in the world who needs and deserves a lot of attention and the um, the day-to-day averageness of these kind of unformed young characters, uh, well, that interests me enormously. The language in this novel is just phenomenally beautiful. It, well, thank you. It, it, it's, what's really great is that it reads really easy. It's, it's a breezy, you could almost call it a beach read, but there's so <laughs> many fabulous turns of the phrase, a very literary. I'm wondering, did you spontaneously generate these sitting in your garret? or did Well, you... sure, I did what I always do. I piled up sentences and filed them down and tried to make them stranger and more beautiful than they were before. You know, I, I, revising is, is, is where the real action is, you know, uh, especially with a book like this where you want it to be kind of tight as a drum. I really, like I say, I, I didn't I didn't think a comedy should have any, um, you know, uh, longures. I didn't want to write a ruminative, ruminative or or um, or digressive comedy. I wanted it to to be fleet of foot. So uh, I I like that you call it a beach read. I hope I hope it does satisfy that uh, that impulse for readers. Well, and as you say in the book, you can't be deep without a surface. Yeah, another one of those paradoxes that <laughs> uh, the characters are stuck with. Well, well, this book operates on that as well. There's a lot of depth in this book, I, I, I believe, that it doesn't put up a, a, a billboard sign. Uh, it doesn't necessarily <laughs> reveal instantly, or it doesn't doesn't uh, wear on its sleeve. Yeah, that's probably true. Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about the rock and roll art form, which I think comes gets to some of the core of what you're interested in. It, it's an odd art form, isn't it? It's a vernacular art form. That's the phrase that I... I've become obsessed with it, it. It comes out of our informal impulses, casual language. You know, a lot of great pop music isn't elevated. I mean, there are examples like Bob Dylan or Leonard Cohen or Joni Mitchell where there's a, a sculpted literary quality to the lines, but a tremendous amount of rock and roll and and pop music generally thrives on sort of inert language that's been charged somehow by the music. It's been made special. It's been brought up to some other level of emotional intensity by the way the singer puts it across or the way the song and the music embraces it. And this is something that fascinates me. I mean, when you think about, say, Stop in the Name of Love by the Supremes, well, that phrase is literally a kind of dumb cliche from cops and robbers movies, you know, Stop in the Name of the Law. It, it, it utterly 
familiar and over-familiar, and it doesn't seem to be saying much of anything. And yet, when it is gathered up in this context, the Motown musicians playing their, their beautiful hooks and the uh, the Supremes singing it, it becomes somehow something much richer and deeper. And it doesn't quite belong to the singer. The phrase doesn't originate with her. And yet, it's collective art. It's become something that belongs to everyone instantaneously. And it's also like a comic book or like a hit movie. It may seem a rock and roll song on the radio, a hit song, to be disposable in some way. And in some way, it may seem to be designed to be disposable, something utterly of the moment and uh, ready to be replaced by another such artifact tomorrow. And yet, of course, if it's any good, it has an immortal quality. And this weird tenacity of great pop art, the way we'll sort of always be singing, I want to hold your hand. You know, it's as fresh now as it was in 1964, or whatever example pleases you if that one doesn't. It's a very mysterious kind of power, especially when you look at it from the perspective of the more, I guess you'd say more traditional and and in many ways more formal arts, you know, the more staid mediums like the novel. So in this book, I'm kind of playing with the tension of trying to push my very traditional and staid medium of sentences and paragraphs and chapters a little bit in the direction of the disposable pop artifact. It's, like I say, an impossible gesture, but creates a certain kind of interesting tension in the effort of doing so. This book is is very funny. It's There's lots of laughs in it. Tell And you do a great job at making us laugh, but not making us think that that's really your only goal? You're not just telling jokes? Well, again, thank you. I, you know, I, I wanted to write a funny book again, and I, ha- I hadn't written a, a, a blatantly funny book in a while, so I, I hope it conveys itself as a, as a comedy and, and invites that kind of pleasure. But what you're describing, and I like the description very much, is my favorite kind of humor in fiction. Not one-liners, not jokes that you could separate from the book, um, but contextual humor, things that arise from character and situation where they're so built into the developing story and to the particular peculiar situation that if someone overheard you laughing, you know, on the subway or or maybe, maybe in bed beside you as you were reading or wherever it was, and they said, what's so funny, you wouldn't be able to say. You'd say, well, you know, it's this character and well, you'd really have to read the whole thing to understand why it's so funny. The line doesn't separate from the context. It Instead, the humor is built from inside. Tell us a little bit about the setup of the book with the band and the conceptual art piece that launches the, the narrative. Well, the, the springboard for the plot is that I, we were describing the, the conceptual artist Falmouth with his absurd ideas, and what he sets up is a complaint line where people are allowed to call in and complain randomly. And he hires Lucinda, the bass player from the band, to man the, f- the phones at the complaint line. So she's one of the receptionists, complaint receptionists, they call it. And of course, this is a very weird and banal job, even though it has to do with this sort of elevated art concept. It's really sort of like a low-end cubicle work to you know sit and, and answer the telephone. But one of the callers is this charismatic, bullying, strange figure uh, named Carl, who she comes to think of as Carl the Complainer. And what happens is that she begins to take some of the strangest and most interesting things that Carl the Complainer says when he calls the complaint line to complain and turn them into songs. She hands them over to the other band members and says, here are some lyrics, but she doesn't mention, she leaves out the part that they're in fact not hers, but but that the words belong to someone else. So this little misunderstanding about what you might call ownership of intellectual property puts the band in a very unusual situation because the the songs, and one in particular, that, that come out of the complainer's complaints are good. They come to life. People are excited about them. They're instantly... They give the band a new kind of revitalized energy. And just as quickly, the complainer learns about this and kind of asserts his claim. And he says, well, great, you're using my lyrics. I guess that makes me a part of the band. And he inserts himself into their lineup with uh, what I guess my publisher would call predictably disastrous results. The fifth beetle, as somebody re- refers to him. 
one of the things I, I really liked was that you did some really great rock and roll writing. There are two fantastic uh, epitome of rock novel scenes in here. One is the scene where the band comes to life uh-huh. in that first... The first rehearsal the scene. The first the art gallery. Yeah. And then there's the one where it completely blows up. Yeah, they do a live in-studio in radio appearance, but thanks to this impossible fifth member who's joined the band, they, they sort of fall apart live on the air. Tell us a little bit about writing these these kind of classic scenes of a rock and roll band. Thank you for calling them that. I, I, I just, I suppose I've absorbed so much good rock writing. You know, I'm such a, a reverent fan of the great kind of pioneers of of music writing, Griel Marcus and Lester Bangs and Chris Gow and Dave Marsh and a number of others, Paul Williams, that I I can kind of project these uh, what are in fact concert concert reviews of non-existent concerts. I I like to play around with the sort of official language of of rock criticism because there is a vocabulary that's been developed. It's a very peculiar one. So I guess that's what I'm doing in those in those scenes. They're two of my favorite comic set pieces in the book for sure. There's a lot more going on besides the music. It's, you know, what I love to portray in those scenes is the undercurrents, the emotional negotiations going on between these characters at the same time as they're trying to put on a show. And these negotiations, I, I think, get to the core of a little bit what we you were hinting at with uh, the complainer and the usurpation of his lyrics. Rock and roll is a collaborative art form. Yeah. So everybody in the band is, in a sense, stealing from everybody else, and it's all just a big stew. And you can't say, well, this stew is, is my meat. That's that's right there. That's the good. No, it's my carrot. Right, right. Well, I, I do think there's something quite fascinating about collaborative forms and you know this is true in comic books and in film and and anytime say someone like a composer or a choreographer has other people enacting their work for them quite different from what I do or or what I suppose you you could also say a, a painter does which is just work in this kind of grand isolation and i suppose it's an object of great curiosity to me as a fundamentally solitary artist this process this communal amalgam of of voices and and impulses that that I guess is in a way exemplified by a rock band. There often is a singer or a songwriter who is some sort of guiding presence, but in the best bands, as we know, there's always some sort of alchemy that comes from all of the different members bringing something unquantifiable of their personality into this kind of group mind that forms. This is also a romantic comedy, and you write about sex in this book, mm-hmm. and and you write well about it. And one of the things I, I I thought was really fun was was your description of the complainer, because he's becomes uh, he's the object of the bassist's sexual fascination, and her descriptions of him tend to turn the entire man into something that's that's not expected. Tell us a little bit about writing about sex. Well, yeah, I wanted to, to make this a very physical book in a lot of ways. I wanted the players to feel the music physically, and I, I, I wanted to portray the characters, you know, sleepy and hungry and horny. Uh, I wanted to keep them rooted in their bodies, and so there's a lot of eating and sleeping and sex in the book. And Lucinda is a very... I guess you'd you'd say she's a relatively instinctual being. She she lets her body impulsively reach for things without questioning those impulses completely, or at least not to the point of canceling them. She 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 follows her impulses a lot, and they're very young characters. And in a way, I describe them as being kind of all thin and pretty. They're still in that phase where everyone's kind of thin and pretty. But the complainer is another kind of being. He's you know, it's not specified, but he's sort of 40 to 50-ish. And there's, you know, he's got a kind of charisma. It's it's a different kind. He's overweight and he's sort of scruffy and he's got hairs growing out of parts of your body that you don't, you know, usually want to see hairs. But, but it, through Lucinda's eyes, because he's so dynamic and such a intense personality, she begins to explore, I guess, the ways in which an older body can also be uh, an object of fascination and, and 
and and lust even. And uh, there's a little bit of disgust in there, though. She's always kind of comparing him to something slightly revolting at the same time as she's revealing her fascination. And, and while we're talking ab- about sex, I, I guess it's time to, to, to mention that you yourself have become a promiscuous gentleman recently. <laughs> um, yeah, well, you're thinking of my website. Yes. Um, I'm virtually promiscuous. Oh, not, well, not, that's good. Uh, I'm actually quite faithful to my <laughs> wife. But um, online, I have this project called the Promiscuous Materials Site. And it's um, a little gesture, a little provocation in the direction of... Um, free culture. You know, uh, I've become very interested recently in talking about the assumptions and operations surrounding uh, copyright and intellectual property. You know, these very loaded terms that are used very casually or with great assurance by people, even though, in fact, they're very tenuous, very fragile and kind of negotiated concepts. And I've been looking for ways in, in which I could reflect my curiosity and my sense of unrest about this stuff by giving some rights away, by by violating the usual logic of art as commodity. And so the Promiscuous Materials website is a small but, you know, I hope kind of eloquent little zone of operation where some of my stuff is available to other artists to reuse in extremely uh, non-commodified ways. It's non-exclusive and it's... Uh, it doesn't cost anything. So there's some stories there that people can adapt into short films or or one-act plays and, you know, conceivably into other things if they ask to make them into other things. And there's a whole bunch of song lyrics as well that I'm inviting musicians to come and record at will. And there's no no need to pay me anything for this. And, and it's not exclusive. There might be a dozen other bands that are going to pick up the same lyric and fool around with it. So it's it's just a little tiny exercise in personal communism, I guess you'd call it. Oh, my God. <laughs> and you also have made a really unusual offer with this latest novel. Tell us about that. Well, yeah, it's complicated to explain the part that everyone gets excited about and that I've been being interviewed about a lot is the uh, the first part, the free option, where what I'm doing is instead of selling the option on, on the film rights to a filmmaker, I'm giving it away. It doesn't mean that the rights themselves are ultimately free of charge. I'd like to be paid something if a movie gets made down the line. But the usual initial hurdle, which is a quite expensive one for a filmmaker, usually comes out of their pocket, which is just optioning a literary property, a novel or a, or a nonfiction book or a story or essay. I've decided to take money out of that equation entirely. Well, now, you know, this is something that I'm proud of, and it's fun and interesting, but it's not that unique. There are actually lots of instances of writers who will give away an option here or there or make it so inexpensive that they're effectively giving it away. But the really unusual, the really provocative and untested part of my proposal is the second phase of it, which is that this as-yet-unknown, this this as-yet-to-be-determined filmmaker and I, whomever it is that I end up picking to make a partnership with with this free option. I'm asking that they and I are going to take a kind of lover's leap into the public domain later on. Five years after the film has been produced and, and, and shown, whatever kind of life it finds for itself, we're going to promise to rel- relinquish any hold on other kinds of rights. So You Don't Love Me Yet at that point can become, I don't know, a, a, a play or a a musical or, or a comic book or any number of other things. Someone could make a, a sequel to the film if they felt like it or... A conceptual art piece. Or a conceptual art piece or a theme park or a action figure. It's just a kind of experiment, again, in gesture, I hope is a meaningful one, in the direction of not always keeping every piece of art that you make locked down in commodity mode where you zealously patrol its borders and charge people for the right of using it. But in this case setting it free, letting it letting it become the property of everyone. Now this and this uh, promiscuous materials project are both have some interesting influences. Uh, Lewis Hyde, The Gift, tell us a little yes. bit about that. Well, it's a book that's tremendously uh, inspiring to my work in, in a general sense and very directly to blame or to credit for my 
my thinking along these lines, you know, you know, making these various statements, provocative statements about art as property. It's called The Gift by Lewis Hyde, and it's a very, very elegant treatise on the way art functions as a gesture that is simultaneously a, a, a commercial transaction, but also a gift transaction, that there's something about the connection made, if it's working at its best, between the maker of an art object, a book or a painting or a, a song, and the audience that receives it, that transcends and defies commodification. And that's its gift component. Well, this is a very elegant and, and I, I find very stirring way to describe one of the you know more mysterious areas of creativity is the way art creates meaning in the world and creates connections between people that simply can't be described sheerly as a exchange of 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 value you know if 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 you don't love me yet is any good if it's really got something nourishing exciting challenging to offer the reader well then i'd like to think that what's transmitted what's given over when a person reads it is far far more value than the 2395 uh, or whatever it is they've paid for the book it's something that will be with them for a long long time Alternately, it's worth saying, if, if it's no good, then that probably twenty three ninety five is too much to pay. The value of art just doesn't obey these simple laws the way a gallon of gas, say, has a set market price. It's something infinitely more human and more connection-making than that. And you're also mentioned as one of your influences the open source theory and the open source movement with Linus Torvald, the way Linux was built. And right. I, actually, I just talked to Scott Rosenberg yeah. about this and uh, Mitch Kapor's open source effort. Tell us a little right. bit about how that influences art. Well, I've become very intrigued with the way web culture, because of the nature of the digital medium, has taken in a way a kind of leadership role in what I guess you might call aesthetic principles or aesthetic theory where the way people make things on the web, because it is so easily transmissible, reproducible, adaptable, particularly adaptable, the way it's so easy to offer up the components of things you make for people to reassemble and transmute into other kinds of things. Well, this is very stimulating thinking about what it is to make anything, to make a novel or a painting or a piece of music. What happens when you put it in a digital medium where it's not only possible, as it has always been, to appropriate it and transform it, but it's terrifically easy and inviting to do so. What do artists feel about this potential that results? How do they want to behave? How do they want, what kind of rules do they want to set up? All sorts of things have to be negotiated anew because of the digital medium. I'm wondering if you're familiar with Howard V. Hendricks? I've heard that name. He's a, yeah. he's a science fiction writer who has a, a kind of a, a rant that he calls about web scabs. <laughs> and, and he's not happy with people who are, are like yourself and Cory Doctorow, who are, who are giving away their work for free. And, and I wonder if, he, if you'd care to talk about that. Well, shouldn't he be happy where, if, he, if he believes in a purely economic uh, model of creativity, he should be very happy we're, we're pricing ourselves out of the marketplace for free. <laughs> By giving things away, um, I don't. I don't know. I, I'm not familiar with his arguments, so I, I shouldn't weigh in on them. But um, it's a very loaded area. This is a thing that is a very, very fertile and provocative and important conversation that's going on right now. And there's a lot of energy uh, pulling strongly in both directions. You know, you'll find web at web advocates, provocateurs, and anarchists. You know, at the fringes of the culture industry saying, give it up, art wants to be free, there can be no more commodities, copyright is a dead business model. And there are, of course, very strong corporate interests and artists' advocacy interests, organizations, guilds, that are pushing very hard to lock down these potentialities and argue that now with these, with the danger of digital media, intellectual property must be strengthened as a concept, copyright must be expanded, and between these two very extreme positions, and I do believe they are both extremes, well, somewhere in there is the gray area where the working artist has to negotiate a healthy relationship between himself, his need to make a living, the yearning to connect with an audience, which is something quite different from the need to make a living, 
and the values, if that artist chooses to recognize them, of a healthy public domain, of a cultural conversation larger than any one voice, but that each voice contributes to. I've become personally quite compelled by these arguments, that that there is something in the nature of a bargain that's struck when you begin to publish, when you begin to operate in the culture. You're making things. You're indebted to other people for the chance to make things. Your work itself is usually sourced in other artists' work. And I think that acknowledging its participation in the public domain and feeling, as I do, that that's a desirable result, that even though I'd like to protect my copyrights in the local and important sense that I can you know, not be bootlegged or not be pirated out of a career, that ultimately my work belongs to everyone to play with and respond to and adapt the way you know, well, Shakespeare's does. And I, I'm not presuming to put myself on a pedestal with Shakespeare. It's a very lucky thing for an artist if anyone cares at all that they're writing or painting or making art. So I, I try to keep this in mind that to even have anyone bothering to either purchase or receive for free as a promiscuous material the right to work with my my funny little ideas, my odd little characters and so on is a tremendous piece of luck. A lot of artists don't have anyone who cares at all. In Harper's uh, February 2007 issue, you published uh, an essay called The Ecstasy of Influence. And you talk about something that uh, you call cryptomnesia. Right. And I'd like you to tell us the story about the very famous literary property that isn't quite as original as you one might presume. Well, this is, you know, not my tale. I, I, I appropriated it to use as part of this piece. Uh, there's a very, very clever and, and well-put-together little book called The Two Lolitas, which details unmistakably the fact that Vladimir Nabokov had a source, that there was a pre-existing short story by another writer about a child named Lolita who is lusted after by an older professor visiting from another country. And this is something that once you're presented with the evidence, it's just pretty unmistakable. And that isn't to say that this earlier short story is as good as Nabokov's novel or or anything close to it. In fact, it's a, probably a, a rightly forgotten little tale. And it isn't at all clear that Nabokov was conscious or deliberate in his appropriation, but nevertheless, there seems to be a fact <laughs> that that um, Lolita didn't arise utterly out of the void of, of Nabokov's imagination, but that he had a little source for it. Well, this is an interesting example of something that you begin to see everywhere once you start looking for it. It's true in Bob Dylan's music. It's true in all sorts of other novelists' art. It's certainly true in the traditions of the fine arts and in the history of music of various kinds, folk and classical traditions, all depend on allusion and appropriation. It's a very basic part of art making, whether it's done as a kind of suppressed memory, as the word cryptomnesia supposes. It can be easy in certain cases, and I think in Nabokov's case, to, to think, well, maybe he absorbed that story and then forgot it and didn't realize he was reproducing some elements of it in his own work. But it's also done consciously. People borrow and know they're doing it all the time. And it's not at the level of plagiarism, I believe, for all sorts of reasons. One, because they either only borrow a part of something or they combine it with other things or they transform it so completely that it's unrecognizable. Or because they acknowledge their borrowing and they make it, they celebrate it and make it apparent to people. What I've become persuaded of is that whatever form this takes and whatever name you give it, appropriation, sampling, allusion, all these gestures, which are related ones, collage, etc. It's not a minority act or a sporadic act or something at the margins of art making. In fact, it's something quite at the heart of what I suspect artists all do. Certainly, it's at the heart of what I do. You talk a little bit in that essay about uh, photography, and this is a really interesting uh notion that when photography was first invented, there was an idea that maybe because you were reproducing a scene, you should have to ask to take every picture you ever took. Right. Well, you know, it's it's easy to take it for granted now that we're allowed to raise a camera to, to a building and take a 
Sometimes. picture of that building, yeah, in, in most cases. I guess you couldn't walk up to the Brooklyn Bridge right now and take a picture without having someone arch an eyebrow at you. But the fact is, early in the days of photography, it made people very nervous, and there were all sorts of legal decisions that resulted, fortunately, I think, on the side of the photographers, insisting that owners of private property couldn't forbid that private property to be pho- photographed if it was in public view. This seems very logical, but it's, in fact, it was a, a freedom that had to be negotiated. It didn't just come naturally. And I think there are analogous freedoms under attack, freedoms for artists to make reference to the world around them. An instance that seems to me relevant would be, let's say, if a, a painter wanted to make images of famous cartoon characters. Well, in fact, we know that there are lots of cases where painters have been sent cease and desist letters from whether it's DC Comics or or Disney Studios or some other major corporate entity telling them that they're not allowed to refer to those characters. Even though everyone recognizes Mickey Mouse and Superman, they're all part of our cultural landscape and vocabulary by now, their use is very tightly controlled. And, uh, you know, I think there's a very good argument that after a certain duration of time, materials as widely disseminated as those are part of the cultural language, and they ought to be available to our use. We ought to be free to refer to them and fool around with them. You quote Lawrence Lessig, who points out that you can't provide incentive to a dead creator to make more art by offering an extension on his copyright. Right, right. Well, this goes to the question of, you know, who is being protected when notions of copyright or intellectual property are expanded. It is usually not an artist's protection that is directly motivating it, but it's some corporate kind of stronghold of, you know, intellectual property as corporate assets that's at stake. Those are the people who really drive this expanded notion of privatization of imagery or language or materials of various kinds at the expense of a public domain, which is nourished, it should be nourished, replenished by the constant migration of things out of private property into public use. We're in the midst, though, of a really interesting sea change. That Embedded in it, as we are, it's possible to think that the idea that corporations should own books or own movies because they have to pay for the printing presses and pay for the production of the movies, that's not a, that's a, an, a new, relatively new concept that's really only came in the last half of the 20th century. The same technology that made the, the creation of those corporate empires possible has now advanced to the point where they're no longer necessary. Um, the web makes it possible for anybody to publish and s- worldwide publication instantaneously. Cheap uh, digital technology makes music and film, big budget, n- nice-looking professional productions possible for pretty much anybody. So uh, I think we're on the edge and, and the distribution aspect of this is about to make a whole lot of people go out of work. Well, I mean, this is what Lessig would call uh, business models. These are not questions of any kind of absolute issues of aesthetics or morals or or any larger principles, although they're often spoken of quite righteously as though deep ethical or moral principles were involved. But they're simply ways of doing business that are under threat. Now, I'm quite sentimental, for my part, about my publisher. I love books as books. I'm not eager any time to either be, as a reader, reduced only to reading online or to to be published only online. I'd be uh, actually in great despair if that were true. But I do think that it's worth noting that the things that are at stake are, are corporate business models that are choosing too often, I think, to retrench rather than adapt to a changing landscape. As someone pointed out, this may be Siva Vadyanathan, or, or maybe it's Cory Doctorow who said this, it's, it's a little bit like the candle makers trying to sue the light bulb industry out of existence, or the, uh, the horseshoe manufacturers trying to stop the development of the automobile. You've got to understand that these are not moral principles. It's precisely, in fact, free market capitalism that, that dictates that businesses like my own publisher, unfortunately, are going to have to adapt to changing possibilities and changing desires if they're going to thrive. And I I personally, I'm rooting for them (laughs) to do so. One of the things you've recently done 
was to select four novels for Philip K. Dick for the Library of America. This is a fascinating idea. It's really great to see. The Library of America has really seemed to have embraced genre fiction of late. Well, the embrace at least has encompassed the, those beautiful compendiums of crime novels that Robert Polito edited, uh, the crime novels from the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and then H.P. Lovecraft, and now and now Dick has been welcomed into the, you know, kind of American canon because it's very much the Library of America very, very strongly expresses a kind of consensus on the part of its extremely erudite board as to what should be allowed into the American canon. And I, I couldn't be happier that, you know, my, my personal hero, Philip K. Dick, has been recognized this way. And it's a very interesting moment. I'm, I'm, I'm terribly eager to see how the books how the, the the novels and the volume will be received in this context. You know, Dick presents the usual difficulties. He's not a very consistent or elegant writer. So if you judge him on certain kinds of traditional terms, he can seem almost feeble and, and, and you know, not even as good as dozens of other quite ordinary science fiction writers who at least could could write a kind of clean paragraph. But on another level of that of the fertility of his inventions and the... Uh, relevance of his surrealism, the way he invented things that seemed so terrifically crazy, and yet they sink so deep into our awareness. They change the way we feel and, 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 and think about the world around us. He's, well, in my mind, one of the great American writers per se, and so this is exactly where he belongs, and, and uh, I'm, I'm very proud of my connection to this uh, process of, you know, canonization. Tell us how you came into this gig. Well, just out of a series of conversations with, with Jeffrey O'Brien, who is uh, my, my editor directly at the, at the Library of America for this, for this project. And, and, you know, he, he's been responsive. You know, he's a great kind of bridging intellect. If you've read O'Brien's own writing, he is an exceedingly erudite and literary and philosophical writer who nevertheless is encompassing in his in the pleasure he takes in American vernacular culture. To go back to that word, he's a great rock fan and writes beautifully about, well, uh, maybe the best essay about the Beatles I've ever read. And he's uh, a great aficionado of crime fiction and, and film and writes evocatively, gorgeously on both those subjects. And so as in, in, in his marvelously privileged position as, a, as, as an editor at the at the Library of America, he's been a kind of ambassador uh, figure between the the realms of pop realms, the, the the that that American those American forms, jazz and rock and roll and film, Hollywood film and and crime fiction and so on that are so full of energy and so nourishing to so many people, but are also sometimes viewed with the kind of official suspicion. They don't seem quite highbrow enough, or their traditions are not yet recognized or affirmed as serious. And uh, he's he's been someone who has been helping break down that kind of barricade or uh, quarantine, if you will. Tell us about the novels you chose and why you chose them, and maybe a couple others that might have been in the running. I ended up with, after some discussion, with a volume of novels just from the 1960s, which pleases me in a couple of ways. The most important is that it implies the hopeful possibility that there could be another volume of, of novels from the 70s, and I think that there are, there are equally good ones from that decade. And so the first exclusion we made was by picking the one 10-year ten, ten window of activity. We automatically excluded books written in the 50s that are among his masterpieces, like Time Out of Joint, and books written in the 70s, like uh, Flow My Tears, The Policeman Said, and A Scanner Darkly, which are also masterly and every bit as good as the ones in this volume. But in the 60s, which is probably ultimately his greatest dec decade of activity, I centered on the four books that I, 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 I sensed were the, the unassailable peaks. Now, that doesn't mean I don't think there are two or three or maybe even four other novels written in the 60s that are their equal. But these four, Man in the High Castle, The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldritch, Ubik, and Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, are the four that have, uh, in a sense, sunk the deepest into the, the culture. 
They've generated the most critical commentary. They were the most important for Dick himself during his lifetime, the ones he talked about and was interviewed about the most. And as a result, they have a kind of definitive stature. They seem to me the, although I did circle around for a while and think about some dark horses like Dr. Blood Money or Now Wait for Last Year or Maze of Death, books I absolutely adore from the 1960s, I began to think there was no way no way to avoid these four, and that was the, the standard I set for myself. I'm wondering, you also wrote a piece for the Virginia Quarterly Review called Fill in the Marketplace. Tell us about this. It sounds really unique. Well, they invited me to do something that they were, it was an invitation they were offering to a lot of writers all at once, and so the, the piece is in the context of a whole collection of others to write a story using uh, a favorite writer of mine as a fictional character. And I guess in some ways, Dick was an um, impossible to avoid choice for me. There were, there were loads of other writers I love and, and, and whose lives are interesting, and I could imagine writing interesting fiction about, but I identify so strongly with him. And as many times as I had written about him in different ways, uh, directly or indirectly, I'd never done this, try to bring him to life as a character in a way, in a fictional piece. Of course, I ended up writing a very curious multiple reality fantasy featuring Dick. It's not a realistic story in any sense, and I'm very, I'm very tickled by it. I, I guess I ended up maybe partly because I've been thinking so much about art as commodity, and and for Dick, this question of how to make a living was such a dire one, you know, all as well as the question of prestige, of how to become uh, recognized, how to become a writer who was taken seriously. So it was two different kinds of marketplaces that he was frustrated by, the marketplace of reputation as well as the, the you know, dollars and cents marketplace. I, I, I wrote about him and his effort as a writer specifically in, this, in terms of this issue of, uh, you know, value, how value is created and, and measured. Tell us what you're working on now. Are you working on something new now or...? Well, I'm on a book tour now. It's not a time of work. I always try to fight that logic and bring my computer along, drag it through the airports and the metal detectors of the world, mostly for no good purpose at all except to check my email. But I have a novel in progress. I started a book this winter that I'm very excited about and uh, actually has some some Dickian overtones. I think studying the master again in this last period of work when I was editing the Library of America volume reconnected me with that impulse in my work. And uh, it's uh, kind of going to be a big, dark, paranoic novel about Manhattan. So um, not quite a return to Brooklyn, but one, one river away. Sounds like a lot of fun. We've been speaking with Jonathan Leatham. His new novel is You Don't Love Me Yet. Thank you for joining me, John. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom slash agony.